The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to Raising Good Humans. I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman and happy, happy 2024. I thought it would be so fun to start off the season with a joint episode with Kelly Corrigan, who has a wonderful podcast, Kelly Corrigan Wonders. If you don't know her, you should. She's written four New York Times bestselling memoirs. She is so wonderful and curious and fun. And we decided that it would be a great start to the new year to do a joint episode. So have a listen. We originally wanted to go through all five of the principles from my book, The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans, which please make sure to order right now. If you have not ordered already, please order and then go to DrAliza.com if you want to submit your order and get access to a Zoom and an early chapter. Although Honestly, the book will get to you in another week and a half. It's so exciting. So anyway, we wanted to talk about each principle and something personal, a story that Kelly had to align with each one of the principles. But of course, we could not get through all five. So we got through three. Can't wait for you to have a listen. And of course... As always, DM me on Instagram at Raising Good Humans Podcast with questions or thoughts, or just to tell me that you ordered the book and you're excited. <laughs> and a shout out to Jennifer Garner, who did not get credit for introducing us because we gave it to Margie Block. But the truth is, Jen did call me out because she was the person who told me about Kelly. And I want to remedy it here. I love you, Jen. I love you, Margie. And I love you, Kelly. And I love all of you. Thank you for listening and have such a wonderful 2024. So I feel like the best thing we could possibly do, your your book is five principles of parenting. It's coming out January 23rd, but I think we should just do three. You give me three principles. I'll give you three stories. We're going to glue together all the science and all my stories to sort of make sense of three of these. And then we'll leave the other two for the reading experience. I don't even know if I need to say anything about this. <laughs> I just love it. <laughs> Good. But first, we have to dedicate this episode to our shared mutual friend. Hit it. Are you saying Margie Block? Uh-huh. Because she's the best. She's that will make her best. so happy. Just and write she that. glued us together. And now we'd love Margie even more. Yeah. All right. So take me from the top. Your whole vibe to me <laughs> is that we should simplify what has been made overly complicated and that we should beware of this optimization culture where you have to get like every little note right or the symphony will fail. Yeah. I'm so deep in the science. I love the science, but I don't know what happened where... Now the science is being used against us and also people are making up so much. So I really like to simplify it, not because it's not important. I know there are a lot of people that are like, parenting is all instinct and you're going to be whatever. And that's also so chaotic and unpleasant for parents to feel. So it's like overly prescriptive isn't true and it's not helpful. 
and being like, you should just <laughs> go with your gut is unfair to us. So I think the space between is let's simplify the science to boil it down to what we we really know matters across cultures, across communities, across nations. There's There's real science. It's just not as complicated as we've heard it is. And also translating it is a little harder because we're human. <laughs> yeah. So damn it, that's the only catch. I'm sort of most deeply soothed when some ancient wisdom dovetails perfectly with like the latest science. Mm-hmm. To, to me, it feels like the two parts of our knowing are meeting and it's doubly reinforced for me. And the thing that I hold on to is that the number one driver of human happiness across time and culture is meaningful connection to others. Mm -hmm. So that helps me know like what game am I playing? What Mm -hmm. game am I playing as an individual? What game are we playing as a family? What game am I playing as a parent? And the game is love and be loved. Can you love? Can you be loved? And then if you really want to dig in, you could figure out what are the component pieces? Like what makes somebody good at friendship? What makes somebody struggle in relationship? you know, with everybody, with the guys driving the Uber or with their teacher or with a coach or with Mm -hmm. their gal pals. I just don't think there are that many principles. I think that's really where we agree. We totally agree. And also what you just named is the first of the principles, relationship. And it, it comes in, you know, with different names, connection, attachment, relationship, so many different things, sensitivity, love and be loved and feel loved, be able to be loved. But ultimately, relationship is ancient wisdom and science of decades of science. That's the other thing is like, there's nothing transformative or revolutionary about any of this. It's more just quieting the noise so we can hear it. Right. I didn't make any of this up. Right. This is not your research. (laughs) This is not my research. research. This is the research. And that is very important to me too, because I don't know how we lost that too. It's just like different ways of people saying like, I've figured out this transformative way that we can parent. No, it's nothing of <laughs> nothing about this is revolutionary. If anything, it's coming back to what we all know. I mean, it's productizing, like the pressure underneath all this that's surfacing all this revolutionary transformational parenting techniques is that like, you know, once or twice in a decade, there's a book that sells 10 million copies mm-hmm. that yields a television show, which employs 500 people and mm-hmm. makes a billion dollars over 30 years in syndication. <laughs> like that's a, that's a lot of commercial potential. Yeah, that's true. And if you package it just right, maybe you're going to be the one. Right. So let's talk about relationships. Like how do you think about it? How do you talk about it with your clients? How do you talk about it at Mount Sinai? Because I I sit with such a range of people, demographics, experiences, challenges. And sometimes I'm only speaking with physicians and sometimes I'm only speaking with parents who feel like they have everything and why are they feeling this way? And sometimes it's parents who have food insecurity. And the the thing that I love about relationships is that relationships are free and they have deep protective power. So you can move from toxic stress, which can actually lead to outcomes for your future generations that are harmful mental health outcomes and harmful physical health outcomes. But toxic stress moves to tolerable stress simply by having one close relationship with an adult who really sees you. And for me, 
with all the pressure of parenting and like getting it right and being so amazing, the power that just having that relationship and that connection can move the needle from toxic to tolerable, like that power I can handle. It's the fact that we we think that the minutia is so powerful. But so I think about relationship as the single most important thing that we can commit to with our kids. And that covers it across the board, no matter what your circumstances are. And how you cultivate relationship is up to your own personal temperament and your family values. But in general, it's like, I think all feelings are welcome, really helps out a relationship. Say more about that. Who do you want to hang out with? Who do you want to tell your problems to? Probably not someone who's going to tell you how you're supposed to be feeling or that your feelings are wrong or that they have the right answer for you. But it's just someone who's like, gives you that sense that whatever it is you're feeling is just what you're feeling and it's allowed. All right, so here's my get back on that. And tell me more, this book I wrote about these 12 things that every adult needs to be able to say to be in relationship with other people. One of the things was I know. Mm -hmm. And I know is exactly what you're talking about, which is to say, I'm not gonna offer you like seven solutions. I'm not gonna minimize it and say, oh, you know, you just need to. Mm -hmm. Like the word just, I think like, totally lights a fire in my heart. Like it's not a just situation. I wouldn't be this upset if it were a just situation or it's not a just situation for me. For me. me. Like for me, this is somehow complicated and hard and painful. And you're not even seeing that. You're acting like it's happening to you. It would be just a completely different situation. Even though all the facts on the ground would be the same, the main character is so different that everything's going to land differently. So I have this friend who is a therapist and she's a world-class listener. And the most validated I ever felt by her was when she said, I know, I know, I know. Because I found it so surprising because she probably did have a piece of advice or she probably did have a bit of wisdom or a touch of science to apply to the wound. And rather than do that, she just joined me Mm -hmm. and said, oh, I know. I know. That is like for a takeaway for parents that's practical because we're all going to have this happen at some point this week, let's say. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe later today. Maybe today. That one of our children, and this is true for adults and everybody, but it's just like a way in is to talk about our children. But one of our children comes to us and says something about themselves that they hate Mm. or something that someone did at school or something that they feel crummy about. And if we throw in, I know, Mm -hmm. instead of our wisdom, which we probably have to your point, like Mm -hmm. we've been around longer and we kind of do know, but if we just bite our tongues and just say that, I know, know. it changes the relationship. I think there's an even finer point to put on it, which is sometimes with my girls, they'll say something and I'll say, I remember. I remember. But it's actually even more reassuring and validating to say, I know, like right now I know. Because what it does is establish it as a normal human situation and a normal reaction to a normal situation. Like, and that maybe those situations don't really end. It's not like I've mastered it. Right, right, right. It it still throws me, you know? I have a friend who's kind of jokey critical. Mm -hmm. And one of my daughters has a friend who's kind of jokey critical. 
And we really had some good connection over it. To say like, I know, I, I kind of have that too. Like where I try to go with the flow and say, I know, I know I'm such a dot, dot, dot. Right. But it doesn't, I don't like it. Don't like to it. To be honest. I, and I never really have. And I'm kind of feel like I'm letting this person get away with murder by like always razzing me or mm-hmm. easing me over the way I dress or how I don't exercise or I don't right. know how to cook or, you know, it's like oh my this... God, are you talking about me? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is that right with you? Is that, am I right aligned yeah, you're with describing you? describing my bio. That's good. Uh, what's your number two? <laughs> reflection. Mm. So reflection and all of these to me are kind of double because it's about our kids, but it's about us. But reflection is the most about us because we have to do that hard thing of thinking about our experiences being parented, our experiences in relationships and how they went. And sometimes we don't want to, or sometimes it's hard to dig into things that are painful, but I want to promote the science of reflection because when you reflect and you just think about what is all the stuff, the nonsense in my head right now that has nothing to do with what happened with my kid or what I'm about to yell about or the rule that I'm about to make that really has nothing to do with today. So if we can reflect, we can breathe, take a moment and say, okay, what is the past? Let me put that to the side. I'm not saying you're just going to go like, poof, <laughs> this, is, this baggage is gone. But it's more like, I'm going to put it aside. I'm not bringing it on this trip. And right. I can be present in the moment with my child, my kid, my partner, whomever, so that I don't bring history into the decisions that I'm making with the understanding that we're going to no matter what. So at least acknowledging it Even taking a second to hand on heart, have some self-compassion and say, this one's really hard for me to put aside. I might even say out loud to my kid, this one's really hard for me to put aside because fill in the blank, but let's try it. Yeah. Yeah. As my kids have gotten older, I've found that they're deeply interested in our personal histories with our parents. You know, like to them, they're these grandparents and that's mm-hmm. just kind of silly and sweet and fun. And then there's this shift in our conversation and like the way that they're responding to us and even like their body language and stuff when we confess. Right. And especially, I feel like my kids are especially interested in the ways that my husband and I were parented differently. Uh-huh. And then I think it's somewhat flattering to our children to learn how much Edward and I talk and reflect together about how those differences 50 years ago are driving choices and opinions and preferences right now. Yeah. And I think you're kind of modeling for them that we're just people raised by other people. And everybody's pretty much doing the best they can. And you'll have this too. Mm-hmm. Like you're only being raised by these two people and of all the people in the world. And there isn't consensus about how to do this. And there isn't like emotional uniformity. Mm-mm. And so you'll wake up one day and think, oh, this is why I don't like this situation. Mm-hmm. This is why I'm irritable when. And I'm going to show you how your father and I do it when it's happening to us. And then you just tuck this away because 30 years from now, 
you're going to be standing right where I'm standing. And 30 years ago, I was standing right where you're standing. I think it's a very powerful moment when a kid understands that their parent is an actual person Mm -hmm. who went to high school and had other boyfriends and girlfriends and didn't get into the college they wanted and got fired from a job. Like there's no time when my kids are more interested than when I'm telling them about a failure. They could not be more intrigued by the gory details of me being fired from Villanova Pizza than any, any other story I could possibly tell them. So I think reflection is not only is it calming and incredibly useful in terms of like preparing for a better next step, maybe reduced regret, <laughs> but also it's a bonding. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a way to do it. And like, it's bonding for Edward and I to reflect exactly. and say like, well, how did you do money and like yeah. allowance? And why, well, I'm so sure that we should not give our kids a penny. And he's not, he does not share that point of view. So it's like, why? Tell me what you got or didn't get. Or didn't get. And connecting with your kids through reflection and even reflecting back to them when they're talking with you and sort of modeling, talking to yourself because you're reflecting, like all of those things benefit us and the other people around us. So there's really no downside to it other than if you sit in that sometimes too long you can have trouble getting out of it. Like rumination. Yes. Yeah. So like if you're co-ruminating or ruminating, yeah. maybe take a moment and say, okay, I'm doing that. I'm going to put this aside for today. It's, it's always coming back tomorrow. But otherwise reflection as a joint process or an alone process is kind of a step you can't skip. Okay. Really important to take a moment, and I know nobody has time, but take a moment and order your copy or copies of The Five Principles of Parenting, Your Essential Guide to Raising Good Humans by me, Dr. Lisa Pressman. Order them wherever you like to get your books. I, of course, would love for you to do local, but you know what? You can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble, bookshop.com. This book is for you to have as a resource whether you have an infant or a teen, this is kind of covering everything I could think of that I know you would need under one roof. And with the ways of looking at every parenting challenge that we didn't cover, but just you kind of start to become pretty fluent in it. Please order your copy of The Five Principles of Parenting and DM me and let me know that you've done it. I am so honored and thrilled and excited for you to have it. It's coming. I just went to this thing where there's all these wonderful people who are trying to figure out how to promote civic dialogue across the country, particularly on college campuses, because they're trying to train like a whole generation of kids who can talk across difference. How wonderful. I know. Godspeed to them all. Yes. But one of these like tiny specific techniques that this woman, April Lawson, mentioned was... She likes to encourage people in these conversations to admit as early as possible anything they're not sure about. And I wonder if you have an opinion about revealing to your children that you don't really know what the right next move is. This is what you're choosing. Like, this is what I believe is right. This is why I think it. This is where it's coming from. And this is the rule. But I don't want you to think like I'm dead sure here. Like I've read a lot. I listen to a podcast. I talk to your father. (laughs) I refer back. I talk to my mom. 
And this is the best I can do right now. This is the rule. You cannot go to the party. Yeah. I'm not going to buy you that dress. Dot, dot, dot. I mean, not only do I think it's okay, I think it is one of the ways that we help our kids not end up in a situation where they get to adulthood and they're like, I'm supposed to know everything and I don't. So I guess I'm not ready for fill in the blank. Yeah. So much more helpful for them to watch our process and to know that, yes, there are certain things that we really feel like I've got this. And there are other things where it's the first time we're trying and we have to make a decision. We are in charge, but we don't know for sure. It's almost like our kids need to know that we have their backs and we have ourselves. We get them, we'll take care of them. We can take care of ourselves. They don't need to take care of us in our, you know, unsureness, but they they can know that it's there. Mm-hmm. So I feel quite reassured to know that I'm not meant to grow into a perfect person who has all mm-hmm. the answers. Mm-hmm. I think it was Winnicott who said something like, well, now I'm going to blow it. I hate when I pull out quotes that I can't remember. <laughs> There's so many good quotes in this book. I, I just like p- plunked them there because I was so excited about them. I think the Winnicott one is still in there, but it's essentially like, I would rather be the child of a parent who has insecurities and questions and growth than a parent who's got it all figured out. Obviously, I have completely changed that quote, but that's the gist. It wasn't really as poetic as I bet it was initially. Maybe we'll dig that up. Maybe we can dig it up. Yeah, and put it out there for people. So my give back on that one is that another one of the sentences I feel like adults need to be able to say to be in relationship with one another is, I don't know. Mm -hmm. We did this whole five-part series on the podcast about intellectual humility. Mm. And it's such a fabulous cornerstone concept. But I wonder sometimes if there's like a developmentally inappropriate age to reveal to a kid that you don't know. Like here's a good example. Here's a story for your science. (laughs) When Georgia was applying to colleges, so it's pretty old, you know? Yeah. Pretty pretty cooked. She asked me after everything had been turned in, she applied to three places early. And she said, what do you think is going to happen? And I was like, this is one of those moments. Like Mm -hmm. there's like, this is a no-win situation. And, but I, I like her so much. And I, I felt like in that moment that I could just sit, I could just be honest. Like I felt like we were, people to get with being people together. And I said, I think you're going to get in to BC. I think you're going to get into Notre Dame. I think you're going to get deferred from Georgetown. And I think you will get in eventually. Like even if you don't get in on April 1st, I think somehow some wait list, like I actually think it's going to work out and you're going to end up there because that's where she really wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And that's what I really thought. What is that the wrong thing to say? <laughs> I mean, she was like, you don't think I can get in? And I was like, I don't, this isn't about what I think you can or can't. You know, all of a sudden I'm like just back, backpedaling like a maniac. And I felt like, God, is it indulgent in any way as a parent for me to be this unguarded and candid with a kid who is clearly looking for someone to say, you're going to get in. But then you feel like on December 15th and she doesn't get in, you're, she's like, you tell me. I- right. I mean, in that case and any case where you see like there's heightened anxiety and certainty is the thing that makes anxious feel a little turned down, you, I get why you want to give the certainty of the answer that is true or the certainty of, I don't know. But I think in that particular case, 
just the safety of being able to scream at you and say like, you don't think I'm going to get in. Yeah. She just needed to be upset because it's so stressful. Yeah. It's just like such a stressful time and you were the person who she could be upset about. So I don't think you could have gotten that answer right. Because if you had said something else, it could have been like, don't lie to me. You don't don't really overpromise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now so, you're building my hopes up. <laughs> yeah, there's yeah. A, no win there. I think the win is like, you have a kid who knew that you were a safe place to just kind of emotionally unload. Right, right. Boy, talk about reframing. <laughs> that was some nice reframing. I meant it. I meant it. But it's true. Like I, I do that sometimes. Like when it all goes to hell, I sometimes think, oh, this must be a big growth moment or they must feel really yeah, safe. There's like two really possible upsides to this horror. Mm-hmm. And, and it is, they feel safe enough to be the, their absolute worst selves. Yeah. And they're probably like growing like crazy right now. And that is true. It's a story we have to remind ourselves, but it's also a true story. But yeah, like with a toddler, I would say you don't need to... Right. You, they, they are so concrete. Yes, yes. That it, it might not be the time to say, you know, I don't know. Right. But having I, the intellectual humility that is so lacking right now is a crisis. So, totally. So that, I'm excited to listen to that series. Yeah, it's, it's so good. I loved the way it turned out and it's had such a huge effect of me, on me. Here's a sort of meta question, which is, I read Alison Gopnik's book. Mm-hmm. She's at UC Berkeley and yeah. she's a great she's thinker a brilliant. on nature and nurture. Is parent a noun or a verb? You know, I struggled with this because in my title, I didn't want parenting for that very point. But here's where I landed. It just is what it is. And we get stuck on that. And I obviously, Alison Gopnik is brilliant. But I remember responding, thinking, because actually she wrote about this also in the New York Times. And I think a lot of people get so fixated on whether it's a noun or a verb and kind of being offended by the idea of parenting. Mm-hmm. And I get that. And it kind of annoys me too, except it just is what it is. Right. And if we could just let that be... It's another one of those things where I feel like we get so stuck in the minutia of what all of this means and what we're supposed to be doing. And I know we just are parents. Like we are parents. This is parenthood. The parenting part, the active part is sort of a funky thing to, to call it, except it's what we call it. We all understand it. Right. So... That's right. Like, don't get, don't get rapture on the axle over something. Yes. I understand it as a point, but I don't think we need to spend too much time removing it from the, the culture. Yeah. I mean, I think the larger point is that the optimization culture mm-hmm. is doing a lot of damage. I think that's the most important point is what is that optimization culture doing? And how can we in the same, like, how can I have a podcast and a book and work with families and also say optimization culture is crap. Uh-huh. You know? It's a very honest question to ask yourself. I struggle with it constantly. And and the, the place I've landed is... But you're the voice of reason. I mean, you're I, the person who's coming through and saying like, look, I'm reading the science. I'm talking to the people. I'm in it every day. You're probably fine. Like 75% is going to work. Yeah. I mean, my hope is that I'm a bit of relief and that... The absence of that voice is also a problem. And so we have to find that space between. So I'm happy to fit in there, but it is constantly weighing on me. And sometimes I do want to say like, 
I cannot believe I am participating in this. Even though I started in this gig so mesmerized by the fact that the environment of parenting is actually meaningful and powerful. And I was like, well, that's amazing. Like, let's get all the information we can to parents so that we can better support kids and families. But then it just, you know, over the decades, it's gone a little far. Yeah. I have theories. Do you have theories why? Yes. I want to hear yours. The lives of women have changed so much Mm. since birth control Mm -hmm. became legal. And, you know, if you talk to Esther Perel, she'll tell you that birth control led to gay rights Mm. and just more choice. Mm -hmm. And for sure, there's a correlation to women entering the workplace. And it makes sense to me that if you're going to work, you're going to feel like you got to double down over there on that other side and you got to like nail it. You got to have your systems. And then I also think that, you know, we're an average of the five people we spend the most time with. It's like a fundamental belief of mine. And so if you're in an office setting and everybody's optimizing at work, that's going to carry over. We don't like take our head off and put a different head on Mm -hmm. when we walk in the house. It's like all getting mixed up together. It's water. And so I think it might be somehow related to that cultural shift. And I I mean, another deeply held belief is that we are contextual beings. Mm -hmm. We we love productivity and achievement. And if that's where your head is all day long, it's going to be hard to like, shift gears and read the bunny book when you get home and and not talk about like milestones Mm -hmm. and goals and little achievements. Yeah. And then also there's the, that all that gets reflected back to us in media. Mm -hmm. So then you get a book and the book has a list of milestones. And now all of a sudden you are completely validated in your obsession over like the pincher grasp. Right. I remember Georgia picking up a Cheerio and I was like, I am amazing (laughs) because my baby can pick up a Cheerio. And the pincher grasp isn't even supposed to happen for another month. (laughs) You know, like it was really meant something to me. I was like, it was a job review. Yeah. I mean, that feels developmentally appropriate though. As a woman, you are already more likely to be a perfectionist and want to get it right. Then you have a baby and there are things that are supposed to happen and it happens a little early or it just happens at all. You're like, I did this. You have a little section, speaking of reflection, about like you have a temperament too. Oh, right. Because there's such a, there's so much focus on like, you know, your child, is your child sensitive? Is your child anxious? Is your child yeah. secure? Is your child confident? But there, there's two people in this thing. Yeah. And that relationship is the driver per your first point. And so it's just as valuable for you to have some sense of yourself. Are you right. apt to overapply something? Right, right, right. Might some little pincher grasp thing really start to obsess you <laughs> and you're going to have to pull way back on it? Like, should you avoid exposing yourself yeah. to lists of developmental milestones? Like maybe that's the best parenting you could possibly do. Totally. Well, like, are you the person who should just shut all this off? Like you're good. <laughs> Right. I mean, I think about it a lot because I, my kids have both been, you know, the Abbey Road is bumpy. And so during their bumpier parts, I was immersing myself in information. And then it became clear to me that like per my temperament, I was torturing myself mm-hmm. and I was creating more fodder to ruminate about. And to what end? Right. So it's like, maybe pay attention to the world. Like that's, a, that's one of the things I would put out there is 
you can shift your attention. Like you, you, your greatest active agency is what to focus on. Mm-hmm. And so you could focus on your kid today and whatever the last conversation you had and whatever you think that portends. Or you could like call your cousin Lisa in Maryland and see how she's doing. Right. You know? Don't you notice that the amount of people that say to a mother around me, and I know we're focusing on mothers, but this is true here and there for fathers, but honestly, it happens more to mothers, is if they describe anything that sounds like really focusing on their kid, whether it's showing up to every practice or game or cooking every whatever, I don't know, I can't checking think their it, homework, checking their homework. The response from people is, you're super mom. You're an amazing mom. And so the other thing that happens... Although I think behind their back, everybody's like, she's crazy. She's crazy. Right, right, right. It might be, that might be passive aggressive. And maybe it's like said in a different kind of way. But I don't... Maybe I just say behind their back, you're crazy. Because I want to validate the way I do it. Because it feels better for those of us who aren't doing that. I was away eight to 10 nights a month when my kids were growing up. So it better be... She better be crazy for going to everything. Because if she's not, then I have just totally hamstrung my kids. It's like the most important thing I'll ever do. And I fucked it up. Right. Well, that's a great point for, you know, like having compassion for in-laws that annoy us or cousins or siblings or somebody doing it differently. That the, the truth is, whoever's doing it the way they're doing it, if it's different from what we're doing, it's offensive. Yeah, it's scary. It, because ultimately it makes us question ourselves. And who wants to do that? Much easier to just be like, you are crazy. Right. And it and this circles out. Like yeah. this is America. So if I just surround myself with the people who travel eight to 10 nights a month, then we all validate each other yeah. like crazy. And we, we all decide right. that those other people are nuts. And yay, everything feels better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Same, same for pro-life, pro-choice. Yeah. Or affirmative action, no affirmative action. And we would be, I guess this goes back to reflection, but we're all better served by reflecting on all of that and then being able to be empathetic to other people and not just continuing to sort of serve ourselves so that we feel soothed. Right, right. Which is goes back to the civic dialogue technique of leading with your uncertainty, mm-hmm. of saying like, I don't know. I, I hope yeah. that in the end, My kids will look back on their childhood and say, my mom loved us to pieces. We got everything we needed. But they might say, she was gone a lot. I had to get rides all the time. She forgot things constantly. I filled out every form starting when I was like eight years old. I literally feel like... They would apply for their own camp. Like they would do their camp application and use my credit card, you know, as like 11-year-olds. Yeah, but I hear that because it, it very much validates me. Yeah, I'll validate you all day long, lady. I hear that and I hear their autonomy. That's autonomy supportive parenting because you let kids do what they can already do and what they're capable of. And then they Thank feel you. good about it. Thank you very much. So, I mean... You can come on anytime. <laughs> I will podcast with you whenever you want, lady. I, um, <laughs> I just remember looking at schools with my first child and my then husband... And I were witnessing a class of juniors and they were in a physics class. And one of the junior girls raised her hand and she said, I don't know if this is the right answer, but I'm going to give it a try. Mm. And we were like, that's the school. That she felt safe enough to have that intellectual humility and also felt safe enough to give it a whirl. I feel like that was 
Amazing. Perfect. We loved that school. And also, I think that's great for parents. Just going back to what you said. I almost think you could use that same phrasing with a kid, which Mm -hmm. is, I don't know if what I'm about to say is helpful, but like a thing that's crossing my mind Mm -hmm. is, what do you think would happen if you dot, 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 dot? If it's the, do you want my advice or do you want me to just listen? But they are up for the advice part. Yeah. That's a great way of leaning in because it says, listen, I don't know, right. but let's figure this out together. And I'm and curious. That's intellectual humility. Yeah. Give me one more. Let's talk through one more. All right. You pick between regulation, rules, or repair. So I want to talk about repair. Then let's do it. Because I feel like if you go all the way back to the beginning, which is backwards designing a life where people can love and be loved, then you have to know that conflict is coming. Conflict is a coming. And then you have to know how to repair after a conflict. Because if it's not welcome, if conflict can't happen, Mm -hmm. you are in a precarious situation because it's coming. It is coming. So if you're looking at infant parent dyads, just like when Ed Tronic from a gazillion years ago started looking at this and found that they were only in that dance that we always talk about infants and their mothers having 33% of the time. That's not that much. Like You mean like the mirroring and the yes. like looking at each other? Because he did the still face thing, yes. which is so horrifying where a mother just absolutely makes her face flat yes. and expressionless. And these kids just go bananas. Like it's the saddest, most horrible thing to watch. I know. Well, it was, it would not get approved in an IRP today. Right? But he still like continued his research and beautiful, much less harmful ways. I mean, it wasn't harmful. It was fine. They were fine. But it's like a really painful study to watch. Oh. They're going banana. Like they're twisting in their chair and they're screeching and they're reaching out. And the mother's face is just like, it's almost like she's in a coma. Yeah, it's so sad. But on the flip side, the findings that 33% of the time, there just isn't, there, there is that connection and dance or whatever, but that the rest of the time, it's disruption and repair. It's mm. like ruptures, repair, ruptures, repair, and figuring that out. And to me, that is just helpful to think about because particularly with younger children, we just expect delight more than an attunement, more than we need to, even though delight and attunement are so important. But the thing that matters most that tells the young children and then translates in adulthood that just because there's a rupture, doesn't mean things are over in this relationship. Right. And so over it's like time... like object permanence almost. A, I mean, did you do developmental psychology? <laughs> yes. <laughs> object permanence and person permanence are part of that whole experience. For people who don't know, that's just the understanding that something exists even when you're not seeing it or a person exists even when you're not seeing them. So to me, the thing about repair that's so cool is that relationships simply cannot thrive and grow without repair. And in order to repair, you have to have rupture. So that means it's a, I know it's another reframe, but when you have these moments of disconnect, when you have a fight, when you just aren't seeing each other, that you can come back and acknowledge it and and come back together and repair. That's everything. Because how many of us in our adult lives have a moment 
of disrepair and think, just like have that panicked feeling of like, is this irreparable damage? Are we coming back together? And how much in the larger world is it a huge problem? Because if we say or do one thing wrong, we're out. Right. So I think repair is like so key, but but importantly, it's also repair within ourselves because we screw up so much and we forget. Sometimes we are committed to repairing with our loved ones, but we do not repair within ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that is just so harmful to ourselves. Mm-hmm. And I do hope that when we think about relationships with our kids and we think about growing and thriving youth, that we can imagine treating ourselves in a way we want our kids to treat themselves. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's that goes to this idea that like my kids made me a better person. Mm-hmm. Some of my greatest motivation comes from thinking, I want to show them, this is how you do it. This is how you love yeah. a person. This is how you say you're sorry. This is how you repair after something awful. And this is how you let go of it yourself and say like, I'm just a person. It's going to happen. You're just a person and I'm just a person. And this is what people do. Yeah. You know, and so so my give back on that one is in Tell Me More, one of the other sentences you have to be able to say to be in adult relationships is I was wrong. Mm-hmm. And I, I distinguish it from I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Partially because I'm sorry is kind of overused and it can have a tone to it that's like, I'm sorry. Yeah. And of course, some people follow I'm sorry with you. Like, I'm sorry you felt that way or I'm sorry you didn't oh. understand. Or <laughs> My body just had such I, yeah. a reaction to that. <laughs> I'm sorry you were waiting. Someone said that to me once. I was like, what? Like, you mean... Because I had late. to wait? Because what? Like, <laughs> oh my God. I'm madder now than I was a minute ago. You've just taken this to a whole new level. I like, I was wrong. But I was wrong means you and I share a worldview. And for a second... I did something that was kind of against our ethos. And I see that. And I am saying, I was wrong. That's not how we do. And now when I say it, now we're on the same side again. And I learned it, I must say, from my husband, Edward Thomas Lichty II, who (laughs) is really remarkable in his ability to say, I should not have said that. I was wrong. Or I should not have done that. I was wrong. And it hit me so differently. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry is like, to me, it always feels a little bit like you're sensitive. Like the big joke in our marriage is that like high maintenance, high reward. Mm. Like that's me. (laughs) You know, like she's kind of a pain in the ass, but it's kind of worth it in the end. You know, and it's like a funny joke, but I don't really feel that way. I don't actually think I'm high maintenance. And I do think I'm kind of high reward. Like I really know how to love people. and, (laughs) And I think I'm good at it. And He's good at it in this very specific and unusual way, which is that he can say, I was wrong. And it is an ender. It is a game ender. It's over. There's nothing more to say. Right. You don't have to convince anybody that they really should feel worse. It's just... That's right. Like you're done. Someone just asked me the other day, she was 22. And she said to me, what should I be looking for in a guy? Yeah for like someone who could be a good parent. It was such a, I was like, what? Yeah. And I said, five thick head of hair. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Just hot. (laughs) The rest is teachable. Yeah. Athletic behind. (laughs) Yeah. Good posture. 
I could, so I couldn't, th- I was like, oh, I don't know. I've never even thought about that. But my first response was repair. Mm. Like not how you get along, not how they move through the world in every moment, but how do they make repairs? And do they make repairs? And do they say things like what your husband says? Yeah. Because to me, that one is the hardest thing to teach because it requires so much vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And some people just do not like that feeling. But the payoff is incredible. Right. And what you could give your kid is repeated exposure Mm-hmm. To rupture and repair, such that the ruptures aren't nearly as scary. Yeah. So they don't end up like I will tell you. <laughs> this is not for the podcast. Never mind. Oh, come on. I'm like, so now it's definitely going like in. The, on our side, it's going in. <laughs> but I, I think it took me quite a long time to not view a moment of discord as an end to a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. It took me many decades, frankly. I mean, I think it's super common. I think people yeah. often flee. I think it's like, I, I don't want to do this. This is bad. I didn't like the way that happened. It's yeah. going to happen again. I can tell this is the end. Goodbye. Exactly. I mean, I'm fairly obsessed with attachment because this field is fairly obsessed with it, but mostly really just because research is me search. <laughs> yes, totally. But I definitely just recently in the past couple of years, got to a point in my adult life where I believed what I believe about parents and kids. Oh, that's huge. Yeah. I know. It's pretty amazing. And that's also partly from exposure to amazing people. Yeah. But I think it's a real gift if you can get that early on. You know, I'm in California where there are earthquakes. And when I bought my house, we had to retrofit it. And of course, I'm like, retrofit it extra because I'm like, don't experience earthquake. I grew up on the East Coast. So earthquakes are not a thing for me. And I was just like, what do you mean? What do you mean? It's not stable if there's an earthquake, like right get in there. And I think one of the things that we can do with our attachment relationships, of course, is we can retrofit our attachment relationships. Mm. And that's sort of where, you know, I have grown into my adult self is accepting that that's like a real thing you can do, but it's just very hard because Mm -hmm. your natural inclination may not be to look at repair as something that's doable, which goes back to reflection and relationships, bada-bing. And bada-bing, people, (laughs) bada-bing. The last thing that I wanted to underline for people, it's part and parcel of your whole sort of approach, is fundamentally our nature is stable and resilient. It's not rare. It's common. And I've talked to this guy, George Bonanno. Oh, yes. He's amazing at Columbia. And he's one of my professors. Oh, great. Yeah. So he's like collected all the research and looked at it kind of in a meta way. And it's just clear as day that like most people bounce, you know, Mm -hmm. most most people get through very hard things. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's the same size sentence as these other sentences that are representing something of much smaller likelihood and a much smaller population of people. But somehow they're like side by side. And so we have this false equivalence. Mm -hmm. Like the words, we are fundamentally in our nature, stable and resilient, should be like painted across the sky 
And then you should have to like look in a crack in the sidewalk to learn about something that only affects like a sliver of people. I feel like that description is about so much of this problem in talking about humans and growing humans is that there is truth to a lot of stuff that gets out there, but it's not your context. It's about such a small sliver of the population in one particular context. And that is all the researcher meant it for. And somebody grabbed hold of it and inappropriately put it side by side next to that statement that you made that the majority of kids and humans are built for resilience. Like that is a fundamental issue with the quote unquote parenting space because we're worried about the worst case scenario, but we should probably know that the best case scenario is the more often than not scenario. Yeah, I mean, it makes the question like, what are the odds or what's the likelihood or what percentage of people does this affect? Like just a question that we should be asking really regularly as we take in the media around parenting. And everything. And everything else, for sure, for sure. I mean, this is this is like, there's only one set of things happening. And this is one of those conversations where you could just lift it and apply it to like five different kinds of relationships. It's so true. I know. And that's why I stay, I'll stay in my lane. Mm-hmm. But I think that these things apply in so many other areas. But if we can just ask that question when we see something, yeah, it can change the feeling that we have and the way we can get through the day. Yeah. How common is this? And now if you bend super anxious, just as a caveat, and you're one of those people who's like, yeah, but I don't want to have my kid or me be the one among a gazillion. Right. I hear you. Yeah. I am you sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And in those cases, you want to just go back to, okay, so am I doing the fundamental things that will better support any situation? We have talked about them. Those are the fundamental things. And the rest is just probably too much weight to carry and not helpful. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for doing this. I love the way you think and the way mm. you ask questions and the way you talk to the world. I, I really have started to get to know you through Margie. I started to pay close attention and listen and look at your work. And I'm just like, come on. We need more of this. Thank you. No, I mean it. You're nice. Just saying. Please note that this episode may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products and services. Individuals on the show may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to in this episode.